0: To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast, and today on the show, I am speaking to Dean Stott, the Frogman. Dean is a former soldier in the Special Boat Service, and his military career was ended by parachute accident in 2011. He quickly transitioned to the private security sector, where he carved out a reputation for being willing to take on any job, no matter how dangerous. And trust me, there are some dangerous stories. He's since become a world record-breaking explorer and adventurer. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about Dean's military career, what it takes to have a relentless mindset. We're going to be talking about that parachute accident that ended his career And we're going to talk about his two world records and so much more. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you guys know that you can win up to one of five prizes we're giving away this month for free. The prizes include a signed copy of Jay Morden's Soldier, a signed copy of Ben Aldridge's How to be Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable, a copy of Tom Young's The Making of a Leader, and two other great books. All you have to do to enter is sign up to our newsletter, which you can reach at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter. As soon as you put your email address in, you are entered in the draw. The winner is announced the 20th of December. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dean Stott all right dean welcome to the freedom pact podcast my friend thank you very much
1: i'm uh, glad i'm here
0: so the reason i wanted to get you on is um over the last year i've spoken to a few of the guys from sas who does wins so i've got to know uh, jay morton ollie ollerton mark billingham uh, quite well and those episodes seem to resonate with a lot of people i think there's a a big desire to hear from guys like yourself. And after putting those out um, every time we we ask via our newsletter, who do you want us to get on? Your name just kept cropping up. And uh, so uh, finally we meet the demand. Um, (laughs) So all those people who are listening now have requested you, you know, they, they know your background. I'm sure they've read your book, but for our audience who may not be familiar with your story before we jump into the content, could you just give us a quick overview of your, your military career?
1: Yeah, so I joined the military at 17. Um, I joined the Royal Engineers. My father was in the Royal Engineers, so I sort of followed, followed that tradition. Um, my 1st posting went straight out to Germany, uh, ended up playing sport, um, and I saw myself going down almost like, a, we call them tracksuit soldiers, a career in sport. So um, I decided to do the All-Arms Commando course. Um, past that and I spent eight years with five nine commando from a sapper all the way through to um, a sergeant and then I had to I had to leave there. and I was very fortunate to also spend uh, being instructor on the commando course during my time mm. time there uh, I then went to the senior diving school um, sorry the the defense diving school and I was a senior diving instructor down in Portsmouth it was that period then I decided to go on selection but rather of going the normal route from Army to the SAS. Because my background has spent in so long with Free Commander Brigade and also being a senior dive instructor, I was very much pulled towards the SBS. So I did selection and became one of the first Army guys to go the, the non-traditional way to the SBS. And I think actually now, you know, at the time it was quite difficult as you can imagine, going against the curve and against the grain. You you'll get a lot of criticism and obviously a lot of attention on a course where you're supposed to be quite a gray man. Um, but yeah, I was successful. And I think, yeah, 15, percent now of the SBS is made up of the army. So, um, so you sort of, opened uh, open those floodgates really.
0: You mentioned there that you joined the army at just 17 years of age. And I read somewhere online that your, your father said that you wouldn't last two minutes. Um, well, of course you, you went on to complete, uh, almost every course available to you at the time. You know you had a great career. What originally spurred you on to join at seventeen years of age, and did those words like "You won't last two minutes what did they do for you? Did they spur you on
1: yeah they so i I always wanted to be a fireman that was always my passion as a young boy. I left school in nineteen ninety three and there was a huge recession there. It was really difficult to get work at that time. I think you know for for one fireman application, there was two thousand cvs going in so a young boy at 17 you know I, there's no way I could compete with that so I looked at um, so I actually I went to college uh, started doing my a levels and things like that and then um, I went down to Newquay. me and my mates for a summer holiday well it turned from two weeks into six months I ended up becoming a staying down here becoming a silver service waiter and ended up working in a surf shop and you know my, long before the mobile phones my father then came looking for me six months later sort of highlighted that I'd ruined my education. Um, what was I going to do? So I, I sort of said, a throwaway comment away well, comments, I'm going I'm to join the army. And he said, well, you will last two minutes. Um, at the time, I was about five foot seven and nine and a half stone, so I could see where he was coming from. But actually, that, that gave me that fire in the belly to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. And, and that's what it did. And, um, you know, I always say that there's no point in arguing with someone so your you're not going to change their point of view. The only way you can do that is actually by actions. So I, I joined at 17. Um, by the age of 21, I was a para commando diver and PTI. I'd done every arduous course within the engineers up until that point. And actually, on reflection, in hindsight, it may have been reverse psychology from them. You, you, you just don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, it gave me an extra fire in my belly. Mm.
0: So what would you say then, I think, for a lot of young children – Especially in this part of the world, Um, it's almost indoctrinated into you that, you know, you go to school, you get the good grades, you go to university, you get more good grades, you get a nine to five job. You know, if you make more than 20 grand a year, you're considered successful these days. That seems to be the path that's almost given to us. And we, you know, we think we have to follow in order to be successful. And there's, there's not many people um, when you're younger, in you know, in education uh, or institutions telling you that there are other options. What yeah. would you say to the the kids of today that maybe are, you know, too afraid to chase a dream or too afraid to try anything outside of that norm that they're told is almost the only way forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressures from children nowadays, especially more so from their parents, that they want them to have an education, once you to go to university. But it's like... Well, what does that give you you know that doesn't give you any any life skills so when i as i mentioned by the age of 21 and you know i had done every arduous course in the military my friends were still at university at this point and already i would had so much life experiences uh, and skills which are actually transferable the world's fixated on education you need to have degrees but you're you know you can't be experienced without experiences i'm starting to see a shift really and the fact that, well, I, you know, me, I'm a, I'm a CEO of a, a security business. You know, I, when I see CVs in front of me, I ignore the education bit. It's what have you done uh, since then? And I just say to the young kids, you know, carve your own path. You know, don't worry about what your parents want you to do. You know, you're in charge of your own destiny. But it's, um, but for me, the successful the successful people I know in the industry didn't go to university. I'm not saying going to university doesn't help you because there are a lot of successful people out there, but it isn't the be all and end all. We're not, you know, a lot of people are very intelligent, but they just get bored. You know, I'm sure I've got ADD. I'm like, you know, that's why I just, you know, I didn't want to go to college and things like that I wasn't really interested. I wanted to get out and see and see the world. So no, be in charge of your own destiny. Don't, um, it's very easy to say to you, you know, don't, don't break to peer pressure. But, um, you know, don't feel that going to university is, is the answer.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think for me, especially that resonates with me. I mean, I went to university. I studied. I have a degree in history. Um, yeah. And then I come out of university. And my, my, my source of income since then was I first became a gym instructor, Personal trainer, nothing to do with history. And now um, my income comes from this podcast. Again, I don't use my history degree. So it's uh, arguably three years wasted for me because at the time I didn't really weigh up. You know, I just thought, you know, everyone in school, the teachers were telling you, you know, what you were good at at A level, that's what you should go on to do at university. And I almost felt like it wasn't my decision at the time. And I think that what I'm doing now, all my education has come from life experiences and books more than anything is, is reading personal development books and you know that's what that's what my my best education has been so far so for you what has been your best education where do you look for to uh, to learn and grow
1: obviously when i when i know i'm going back to yours i don't mean you've wasted the three years i think when you're 17 21, 22, you still don't even know what you want to do, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's unfortunately the the institution feels like you you have to have make the decision at that point. Um, so for me, I when I joined the army, I thought, well, I'll do three years. That's why I joined the Royal Engineers. My father's that, well, do three years, get a trade, you know, get something back, and then you know helps build your CV. It was only then when I was in there that I saw opportunities. I you know I looked at some of my peers, and I was just like, you know, wow. Um, so I love. I used to absorb and you know, I used to soak all the information from it. Hear about their stories, their experiences, and and, and you know that's what I loved uh, in in the military. And that's where I got my education through others, and also going through it myself. You know, I mentioned you can't be experienced without experiences. It's <clears throat> the military is a it is a business. It's a corporation at the end of the day, and there are so many companies out there trying to replicate you know, the experiences that the the guys and girls get in the military, but you you just can't, you have to be in the military to to get there. Um, But, you know, I I, I see some guys and girls when they're leaving and going back to your original one about degrees, a lot, oh, well, I'm going to struggle because I don't have a degree. Is that, well, no, you don't. But there's so many transferable skills you have and that you've got from being in the military, which resonate with the corporate world. Um, I think nowadays with the world very going technical you know you don't even have to call someone now to order a pizza it's all online and people are really struggling or will struggle to communicate one-on-one and, and that's what the military does for you you know I'm very fortunate that I've been able to stand up in front of 10,000 people and guest speak or in, in front of 96 students on the all-arms commander course I've seen clients I've taken to to Libya to do pitches and these guys are you know six-figure sums being at university and everything else, put them in an audience of like 10 people and they, they, they just crumbled. So it's those transferable skills and life skills that you get, that confidence, um, which no sort of degree or any sort of books can teach you.
0: Just pulling the thread here then, and it's probably something I suffered with when I came out of university, and I imagine, you know, not just a lot of young people suffer with, but, you know, in in, in every area of life. And maybe you've experienced it yourself is, This idea of comparison and, you know, they say comparison is the is the thief of joy and it's easy to say, don't compare yourself to people. But, you know, for me anyway, when you're coming out of university, you have a degree and, you know, you don't use that degree, you end up being a gym instructor and, you know, you're looking at someone else who's come out of university with their degree, they've gone straight into a job. Um, you know even turning this to you I think you know in a career like the military I I wonder if people are you know are often comparing their accolades to each other and thinking you know how am I not at this level what are your opinions on comparison and do you think it's quite detrimental to our enjoyment of life in the home?
1: Um, There's two sides to it you know comparison I used to use it obviously, when I was in the ministries, long before social media. Comparison now with social media is very different from comparison when I was in. Comparison when I was in was looking at others that have done it. And and that, for me, was healthy competition. Is that, what well, they can do it, I'm going to try and do it. So I use that to my advantage. But, you know, um, whereas now, you know, the youth, you know, they're looking at social media and, and it's just smoke and mirrors. You know, no one's going to post you know, sad pictures and things like that. So I always say, don't compare yourselves to people on social media. You're, you're in charge of your own destiny. You know, when I did the bike ride, it was, it was very easy for me to look at other adventure cyclists. But I was that. well, no, they're not me. You know, I know me. Um, so yeah, it can, it has its positives and it has its negatives. The positive wise is I use it again as firing my belly to, to compete with them.
0: You mentioned that, you know, you took the decision to apply and, and go through the selection process and eventually you joined the SBS. But talk to me about that decision, because, you know, a lot of people at that point would have been content with the career you had, considered themselves successful. But, you know, you wanted to take that extra step further. Are you the kind of person that's never learned themselves become content and you're always looking for that next challenge?
1: Yeah, I think so. There's a lot, like I say, I was successful already in the military and you know, a lot of people would have been happy with that you know, but for me I, when, I, when I'm when i on my deathbed, I don't want to ask myself, did I give it my all? You know, I don't want to regret that I didn't try it. You know, if I tried it and I failed, then, then I tried it. Rather than saying, well, at least you didn't try it so you'll never know the outcome. Um, for me, you know, again, I'm, I'm very competitive. My father was very competitive so I, I had that that competitive um, element in me, but also, you know, selection isn't for everyone. But there were guys that I knew who were capable of passing, but it was the fear of failing because they'd achieved so much anyway within the airborne and commando units, and they were, you know, respectable figures. They didn't want to then take the risk and the whole pedestal fall beneath it. You know what I mean, so a lot of them don't push themselves further, they get to a, a comfort zone, and they're like well I'm, I'm happy with this uh, rather than getting out their comfort zone and putting themselves out there um so that yeah, that's something I have noticed because I, I did notice a few guys like, well, why don't you do it and like, oh, no, you know I mean? and, and I know now it's because they didn't want to fail and then you know that 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 word failure, me and my wife talked about it yesterday you know. It's such a negative word that people are so scared of that word. When in fact, every failure is an experience. As long as you learn from that failure and you don't repeat it the next time, then it's just experience. But, you know, everyone's unique. Uh, I get that. You know, for me, you know, the extra drive for me on doing that course is when my friends from the SES who act. Know what are you doing? You know, why are you doing it? You know, I mean, you know, much to the disgust of them. Uh, and which got me extra attention on selection. But um, but for me, I thought, well no, watch this space.
0: It's funny you mentioned failure. I mean, that that is the exact attitude that that, that I have. And it's funny, my, my podcast partner and I, we we don't do it so much anymore, but there was a point where we loved um this idea of, of failing. And we always used to ask each other at the end of the day, I'd send him a text, I'd say, tell me something you failed at today. And if you couldn't tell me something you failed at, then I'd say you're not trying enough. And you know, we mentioned failure there being a massive reason. And um, with that selection process, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a figure I found online is that the, the pass rate is below 5%. And you, know, you, you would have seen a lot of people on selection that made it and a lot of people that didn't. What are the big main differences you noticed between the people who made it the elite and the people who didn't quite make it?
1: I think because when, when you start, and I think mean, there was just shy of 200 that started mine, mm. and they're all shapes and sizes you know, you've got your big guy, you've got your fit guys, I and mean, you've got your little skinny grey men and things like that. So it's very difficult at the beginning to you know, understand who do you think is going to pass and fail. You know, the, the DS tell you on selection, let us fail you, don't fail yourself. A lot of the guys take themselves off. I, you know, there's those that generally get injured on the hills phase or whatever. So you're going to get a natural attrition of that. But then when you go to the jungle, you're going to get those guys that are just self-doubting. You know, I'm not good enough to be here because they're comparing themselves. It's that comparing. They're comparing themselves with others in the team. But, um, and also the instructors are in your ear. You know, unlike what you see on telly, you know, when they're screaming and shouting. That is the opposite of selection. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a fine line on TV between authenticity and entertainment, and they've gone entertainment. But actually, on selection, the instructors will just tell you what to do, and they don't need to repeat it. If they need to repeat it, then you know you've highlighted yourself. So, but they will niggle in your ear that like, you know stop what you're doing here. You know, you know you're not good enough for this. You know, save save your time, save your energy, and go home. You know, I remember going to. Um, in the jungle going to one of the ranges and we just arrived and one of the instructors just, you know, turned and just uh, screaming and shouting at me. And he's like, ah, right. If I ever see weapon handling drills like that again, you know what I mean? You'll be off the course. And he was just waiting for a reaction to see how I respond. I hadn't even been on the range yet, but I knew it was mind games. And you, you sort of know there's going to be mind games on there. But for me, you know, I was happy with that. There are some guys, you know, it does then, it sows that seed. I mean, they, 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 yeah, we're all human. People will mess up at some point. You know what I mean? And, and they just play on that. I think, oh, you know what I mean. So, um, so it's it's strange. It's um, when you see the guys at the end from the guys at the beginning, you probably wouldn't have been the same people you'd, you'd have picked out. You know, they're very, very resilient. Obviously, uh, you know, naturally fit, um, but, but very resilient, but also very intelligent as well. Can you know take on board information? Doesn't need to be repeated.
0: Mm. you mentioned the um one word resilience um you know throughout your military career at the elite level what did it mean uh to have a relentless mindset what what does that mean to you
1: a relentless mindset you know for me you know when i joined probably at the beginning when i joined the military you know 17 you know five foot seven nine and a half I, i wasn't that confident but actually 10 weeks later when i passed You know, I thought, and I was actually, you know, competing. I was was actually at the front on PT with some of the other guys, you know, that then gave me my own, built my own self-confidence and built my, um, my mindset. And I thought, well, what next? So then did the PTI course and actually during this period as well, I'm also growing in height and I'm growing, I'm starting to grow into a man. So each time I did a course, I got more confident. But not only was I passing, I was, you know, I was either top student or, or pushing for top student all the time. So that unrelenting pursuit of excellence if you're going to do something, you give it your 100%. You do it to the best of your ability. Because if you don't then make the grade, but know you've given it your 100%, and you can look yourself in the mirror. And I think that's where some people don't give it their 100%. And then, you know... I've had some friends who, you know, they've taken themselves off selection and they, they'll get in touch with me months down the line. Like, what was I thinking? And, and they have to live with that guilt. You know, for me, it's knowing that I, I won't ever live with guilt. Mm.
0: We mentioned earlier that, you know, some people out there, especially on social media, only like to highlight the good and the, the glamorous moments. But what I appreciate about, appreciate about you and, and your story is you're very open about the accident that ended your career. And for, for those who are unaware, um, before we you know, we, we get into some questions, could you just sort of highlight that accident in, in any detail you can to, to our audience?
1: Yeah, of course, Dan. Yeah. So obviously I'm now in in the special boat service and I joined at a time it was on the height of war of terror. You know, we were you know, probably the busiest time in, in SF history, you know, you had Iraq, Afghanistan, you had stuff on the East coast of Africa, you know, it was, it was a busy period. And um, I always say I was like living and breathing, you know, what these kids play on call of duty. That was our day our job, our day job. And um, so for me, I, I was at the top and also I was working with like-minded individuals, you know, guys that were confident in their abilities. And it was, again, it was healthy competition as well, always to push yourself to try and be better than them. And they would do the, do the opposite. So for me, I was, I, was, I was happy, I was in a happy place. And we were just about to go to Afghan on another tour, two weeks before on a pre-deployment training in Oman. And we were doing a, a hey-ho jump, which is high altitude, high opening jump. So it's a method of insertion. You exit the aircraft at 15,000 feet, and it's a static light, and unlike three, you're still attached to the aircraft. As you exit the aircraft, the parachute will then go tight and open uh, above your head, and you then travel up to 50 kilometers or 30 minutes airtime to the uh, target area. So this is about the fourth jump of the day, and we've done, done these hundreds of times, you know, and it was the fourth jump of the day, exit the aircraft, normal procedure, but this time my leg, no, there was a freak, accident. my leg got caught in the line above my head, so I'm trying to pull my leg out in time before the parachute opens and then obviously causes more damage. I couldn't clear it in time. The parachute opened, pulled my leg over my head and to the right. And thankfully, my, my foot got released from the line and my leg wasn't taken completely off. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, at 15,000 feet, you're also on the limits of oxygen. So I was vomiting because of the pain. I knew there was a problem straight away. And I was also drifting in and out of consciousness, but no one else in the team was aware there was a situation. So my 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 first aim was to stay with the stick. Um and obviously in the back of my mind was wondering how the hell am I gonna land this? Cause I've only got one leg. And if I messed that up, you know, you could damage the other leg completely as well. So I got to the uh, to the DZ. Um, I assessed the approach of the other parachutists with the winds, and you know I, I did a perfect landing. I actually landed one-legged, mm. but unfortunately the uh, the damage sustained you know short in my career. I tore my I took my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within my knee, my hamstring, my calf, and my quad, so all the supporting muscles um, as well. So I had an MRI scan the next day, and then um, waited for a, an aeromed flight. But um, but yeah, you know you've gone from being at the top of your game, you know loving life to all of a sudden reinventing yourself what what now you know sixteen years in the military, you know I, I grew up in a military family, all I knew was that military environment, and it was almost yeah, thank you for your time, you know you now need to leave uh, and that was that was difficult for me you know in reflection it's it's what's known as an identity crisis mm. um, very you know it's common within guys and girls in the military, um, professional sports athletes, but it's also anyone, anyone who works in a close knit team or environment, you know, for a period of time. I and mean, then you have to change that environment. It's, it's very, tri- it's called very tribal. You know, you leave one tribe. And like, how do I, yeah. what other tribe am I now going to go into? And um, again, you know, obviously I was confident with the skill sets that I learned in the military, the transferable skills. Um, but without sounding like Liam Neeson, the natural progression for people from our background is, is the private security sector. But yeah, that was, um, you know, at the time, I, I was also under pressure. My wife was eight months pregnant. It's like, you know, not only have you just left everything that you've ever known behind, how am I now going to support my family, my young family?
0: Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. And, you know, it's something I've spoken to. Uh, we've spoken to many guys involved in the military. Um, obviously, the ones I mentioned and, you know, a few, a few, Ameri- you know, uh, General Stanley McChrystal, um yeah i've spoken to a few of these guys and they all talk about this identity crisis and you know like you rightly said up to that point in your life that's all you've ever known you've been you know dean stop the the military man um but that transition when you realize that that's not a possibility anymore your mind must go to some dark places man
1: it does yeah you you do you know i think to add to my pressure was obviously my my wife um uh, being pregnant. But, you know, you, you hear horror stories of guys and girls when they leave their transition. Some's quite smooth and some can be quite turbulent. Mm-hmm. Now, Thankfully for me, my wife is very entrepreneurial. So, you know, when you're in the military, you know, they're like your mother, your father, they clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time. You know, I didn't know what council tax ban they was paying or who provided the heating. I didn't actually care. But now you need to learn about this when you enter the civilian sector. But thankfully for me, my wife, did that. She was my military umbrella. She, she did all that for me. And, um, you know, I then went into the private security industry and it wasn't until actually a few years later. So in 2014, I, I single handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy out of Libya on my own, um, 18 military and four diplomats. And they were the sort of jobs I was doing, evacuating people. I was uh, training, you know, the great thing about the security industry is very diverse. Um, you know, one day you could be training the Kurdish special forces, next thing you're taking the UAE royal family super yacht from Barcelona and Maldives. But it actually it came to a point in 2014 when I returned from that uh, evacuation that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. And again, this was where the pin dropped. I actually hadn't come to terms with the fact that I'd left military or the special forces and i was trying to match that adrenaline rush that i had when i was still in without having to come to terms so so there was sort of two stages in my in my life there was that identity crisis at the beginning and i thought well for me it's to excel within the security engine make a name within the industry which i then did then realize actually that you didn't have that top cover if it had gone wrong i didn't have the lads jumping out of planes or helicopters coming to my rescue so um so yeah, I think it's chapter sixteen in the book. It's called "Dead or Divorced." I think that was the stage we are <laughs> at, at the moment. But um, but yeah, common, very common with those in the military is, is you know, how am I going to reinvent myself? You know, what is my role or, or purpose now within society? Um, and I think just to add to that, where mine also works quite quickly, a lot of guys and girls when they leave blame the civilian sector blame the community. They're like, ah, they'll always find excuses that, well, they don't understand, or they're always late, you know, and, and things like that. And there's always these excuses when in fact, as soon as you realize it's actually us that are unique and we need to fit into their world, not the other way around, then you, you'll get on a lot better. And some guys and girls really struggle with that.
0: It's Interesting, you know, you talk about this private security. And again, this is a theme that crops up a lot with guys from the military. Um, you know, when I spoke to to Mark Billy Billingham, he said that you know it was he was so thankful that that came into okay. his life. So, for you, what was it about this the security? Was it having a job with almost you know a similar purpose to the military career? Is that is that what drove you into that industry?
1: I think it's a similar per a similar purpose, but it's also it's it's, it's almost when you're in the military, it's great because you know, at any time you could be sent off anywhere around the world. Every day is a different day. And that's what I found with the security industry. You know, there's different elements of security. There's those guys that go on rotations that will just, you know, work in Iraq for three months, come out and then go back in. Whereas I very much did the ad hoc stuff. So, you know, one minute I get a phone call, i would be in Ghana the next phone call I'm taking, you know, I'm with Visa Wheel Cup in Brazil. So I made, you know, I was, I was conscious to do that as well. So I, I had exposure. the the whole of the security industry, from the maritime, the surveillance, the coaching, you know, and the, and the close protection. So yeah, it was actually very similar lifestyle of being in, in the military, but actually I was doing more, probably, you know, more secret jobs in the private security than I was actually in, in the special forces. You're not governed by that whole, you know, rules and engagement and protocol, you know, Going into Libya the first time within 48 hours, I, I soon identified that a lot of these security companies, again smoke and mirrors, were charging six-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans. When actually, when you scrape the surface, there was nothing there. So, for me, I rather than just work in the security industry, I wanted to, you know, get a name within the industry. So I am. Um, I bought 30 weapons on the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt. And I just wrote, just did my own evacuation plans, uh, made my own reports. Um, and, and yeah, and they're the sort of jobs, jobs I was doing, but I, was, I know I felt that, that fire in the belly. I felt that like I had a role and a purpose and I, and I was doing good. I, I, I think the private security industry isn't nine to five and that's very relatable to the military, hence the natural transition.
0: A thing that I, you know, I, I really admire uh, about yourself and you know those who are, you know, from a similar career to yourself, you you all seem to be what I call comfortable in chaos. And going back to your accident, we just talked about, you know, in a moment of pure chaos that would send ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people into panic and shock and complete mental shutdown. How did you manage to keep? level-headed keep focus and keep the eye on what needed to be done to get you to safety because you know like i said for, for so many people they would have panicked and that would have been that
1: yeah i think you know the great thing about the military you know we rehearse rehearse we train we train you know you can't train for every scenario but you, you know so when situations like that happen whether it's parachuting whether it's underwater you know, the first thing to do—they always say—is don't panic. It's very easy to say that, but um, you know, what I mean. But again, that whole phrase—it you can't be experienced without experiences. Experiences that I've had before, which helped me in that scenario. You know, I've had two malfunctions before parachuting. Before that one, at least I had a canopy above my head, mm-hmm. so actually I wasn't that worried. It's when you look up and there is no canopy—that's when you need to worry. And I've been in that scenario before, so for me it was like, well quickly assess the situation. That's what we're, we're quite good at is, is quickly reading the situation and making uh, a decision. So obviously, yes, my leg's still there. So that's fine. It hasn't been ripped up. I, I have a canopy. I just need to now land it. So, you know, you sort of control those things. You can't control the uncontrollable. Um, and people who try to do that or get fearful of that, you know what I mean? So you just, just deal with what's in front of you.
0: I love, um, the story of how you decided one day you just fancied having a go at breaking a, a world record, um, and you know I I read that you know the the story behind it was that you know your wife almost just threw a, a Guinness world record bucket you and it and it went from there. What was the process like of you deciding what record you wanted to break? How did you come to that decision?
1: so that was more dictated so uh, i talked about the canadian embassy when i returned from that trip um you know my wife as i mentioned highlighted i'd only been home 21 days in the year so something again had to change in my life my wife was a property developer so she said look you know you come work with me this is about five years now having left from my injury to this point in my life and whilst in the security industry i was so fixated on building up the business and and, and working. I sort of neglected my own physical well-being. So my injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. So I just bought a push bike, just bought one off Amazon, uh, just bought a cyclocross bike off Amazon and I just cycled to and from the office. It was only about eight miles there, eight miles back. But it was the first sort of cardiovascular fitness I'd done in five years and straight away I felt good. You know, I just felt I I had a purpose. But you can imagine sat in these architects and planners meetings. I was like, ah, you know, I wasn't really interested. So um, my wife then said, yes, you need to do something. It was about a month before my 40th birthday. I said, well, I've always fancied the world record. And the, the question was, well, what in? You know, what, you know I should have at 12 Ferrari Rochers or something. But I said, well, cycling, because I chose cycling because I knew it wasn't having an impact on my injury. and my, my injury wouldn't get in the way of that. I knew I had the endurance. I knew I had the mindset, but I just wasn't a cyclist. So, um, so that's where we came up with, with the cycling challenge. And then my wife then found, yeah, you know, originally I was looking at Cairo to Cape Town. Um, but majority of my private security industry was in Africa. So for me, well, I've I've ticked that I've been there. I don't want to do it on a bike. So my wife then found the world's longest road, which runs from Southern Argentina to Northern Alaska. Uh, and I thought perfect, you know. There's areas there I've never been to, so there's countries I've never seen before. Um, it ticks all the climates, you know, the jungle, you know, the desert, the Arctic, and so that's what I did. And so, having only cycled less than 20 miles, I applied for the world record uh, for Guinness. <laughs>
0: Mad man. And so, so, talk to me about that that journey. You know, you mentioned that longest road. What were what What did the days look like for you? Like, what was the slog?
1: So. You know, going back just slightly, you know, I I, I wasn't a cyclist. You know, I spoke to the previous record holders. They all went north south. So I decided to go south north. (laughs) Only because all their issues were in the south. The world record was 117 days. I was aiming for 110. So I actually had a plan. You know, I wasn't a cyclist. Um, I I gave myself a year to train as well. So at the beginning stages, I just put pen to paper, you know, looked at all the potential scenarios. what was in my control, what was out of my control, you know, those controlling the uncontrollables. The uncontrollables were natural disasters, coups, third-party influence. So aimed for 110. So I then put that down, broke each day. So I had I had each day broken down in how I would how I would do it. But we always say in the military, best plan survives first contact. You know, you didn't expect them to shoot back. Um, so again, I think the success of this was the fact that. Again, when situations were were coming to me on the road, I was in a position that I could act on it. You know, day one to day seven was forty mile an hour crosswinds. Uh, I crashed my bike in Chile. I got food poisoning twice in uh, in Peru. You know, all the all these scenarios that you you couldn't factor. You know, I had issues with my support team and, and things like that as well in the background managing egos. So um, so that that for me was the hardest log, was actually dealing with something things that weren't part of the challenge, you know, dealing with, you know, social media issues and, and things like that, you know, I had a had a role, I had, had an objective. Um, but for me, I just made sure that I, I hit my objective. I'm very ob- objective driven. You know, I didn't see it as a 14,000 miles. I saw it as, you know, four training sessions a day. And that's what I did. I just did the first two hours, had some food and water, I and mean, then looked at the next two hours. I didn't look at, at the next, um, so yeah, there were there were dark days, but for me, I made sure that when I finished my ride for the day, I, I hit the objective or hit the target or beyond, because then going into the next day, you're in a you in a good mindset, knowing that you're ahead ahead of the curve and you're not not behind. So so that limited any sort of dark periods for me.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, did you at all suffer with any imposter syndrome along the way, or did that planning just prevent that and that doubt creeping into your mind
1: what's that imposter syndrome i haven't heard that one that like? so it's
0: where you almost you know you're trying something new and you 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 almost talk yourself into this idea that you know you're not good enough at this so for example if you know when i started this podcast i might have had imposter syndrome thinking that you know i'm not a podcaster i've never interviewed anyone before what what business have i got interviewing so and so
1: yeah, well, yeah, actually, so my sponsorship marketing team, before we even went, the day one, when we put it all together, did a SWOT analysis. Your strengths, your weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And the only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I took as a strength. But the imposter syndrome was, when I was doing the planning, um, I looked at, you know, all the potential scenarios. I also then looked at the, the climates and the conditions that I'd be cycling in. So the Atacama Desert, is the driest non-popular desert in the world. So it was 47 degrees centigrade when I was there for a, for a week. So for me to replicate that, I went to Dubai and did heat training there for about eight hours a day. So I could satisfy myself, well, actually, when it comes to that situation, you you've tried and tested. Um I did the same um, you know, the biggest climb on the Tour de France is about 21 to 23 kilometers. My biggest climb was 67 kilometers from sea level to four and a half thousand meters. So again, I, I did a 10 hour watt bike session in a simulated room altitude. So for me, I wasn't then having that imposter syndrome worrying that, oh, what am I going to be like at heat? What am I going to be like, um, at altitude or, or in the Arctic? Cause I'd already tested that. Um, and the, and the great thing about, you know, for me, for the challenge, the only thing that was going to stop me was my body, um, as well.
0: Love that, love that. Would you encourage people out there listening now to maybe try something, maybe not a world record attempt um, or anything of that magnitude, but to scale it to themselves and, and try something that makes them uncomfortable to, to try and build that resilience?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, without a doubt. You know, one of the things, so to add to the bite ride, we we're also doing it for a mental health campaign. Mm. And, um, you know, we raised over £900,000, which you know, I'm more impressed about with the bike ride. But I remember sitting down with the foundation and they're like, well, what is the message you're promoting? And I said, well, physical activity helps your mental state. And I said, oh no, it's just 2016. So said, oh no, you can't use that. I said, well, why not? I said, because it's not been scientifically proven. So I ignored them anyway and just carried on using it. So but now it's very much recognized as a coping mechanism. So yes, yeah, so I would say to people, you know, whether you want to do a record, you know, 14,000 miles is ludicrous. You no, know, set yourself your own targets a because it helps your your mental state, but also you then gain uh, confidence. So yeah, without a doubt, you know, do something, you know, push yourself. It, but the best thing to do as well when you do something like it is, is, is do it in in stages. You know, for example, if you're going to do I always use the London Marathon, you're going to run 26 miles and that's your objective. Don't try and run 26 miles from day one because you probably would not be able to do it, and that then has then it's that imposter syndrome. You know what I mean? So do it. in in increments you know set yourself four miles do that and then once you come to that then increase it Um, because then you're then growing in confidence mentally and and physically as well rather than hitting a wall from the start and then trying to pick yourself up
0: you mentioned the the uh, the the charity and you know you've been involved in charity work and notably with with, this those images with prince harry involved as well why is charity and giving back um, such an important part of who you are? What does it do for you on a personal level to be able to do something like that?
1: Um, I think everyone should give back, you know, if they can. You know, you know with my story, my and I, I ended up in a homeless home in Moss Side in Manchester, the roughest estate in the UK. You know, and we used to have to rely on others as charities to help me and my family. So I've been there. I've been at the bottom With the with the receiving hand. You know, when I left the military, the you know, my passion was the guys from the military. Um, I did a lot with the British Legion. The British Legion then helped me with my um with my pension as well. So I've I've relied on these charities as well through my life. So I always then wanted to give back. So I ended up being the SBS ambassador for Scotland, you know, you know, put a lot of money back into the SBS. I'm ambassador now for the British Legion. Um, so yeah, because I think everyone, if everyone helped each other, then it will be a better place, you know? But if you're in a position that you can do so, then do it. Um, so for me, everything I do is also a philanthropy angle. Any challenges I do, yeah. there'll also be a narrative with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we've we've talked a lot today about, you know, things that are important to you, practices. I wonder for you now at this stage in your life and stage in your career, what are the sort of daily practices that you say are, are most important to you? It could be, you know, a fitness routine. It could be focusing on your sleep, your health, maybe mindfulness. What are some daily practices that are important to who you are and the way you function?
1: For me, physio. I've touched on it. Physical activity always yeah. helps. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I don't have a unless I'm. I'm, I'm training for a, another challenge, so I, I have a training program. But if I wasn't training for that, I'd also make sure at least do something. My wife will tell you I'm, I'm a grumpy sort if I'm, I'm not training. So I'm very conscious of that, that. I need to stay on that physical activity. And another one is actually is communication. You know, when I did this campaign for mental health, you know, I did it. Because Harry, Harry asked, would I do it for this heads together campaign? I wasn't aware how big an issue it was throughout the whole of society, but when I was doing it, actually a lot of friends, close friends and guys in the military sort of came to me, and open up for the first time. Well, why didn't you do that before? So, you know, communication. I think people suffer on their own. Um, I, you know, uh, I just found out a friend of mine from my old unit, five nine, passed away a couple of days ago. And you sort of look look back at him, and you see now in reflection, looking back, there may be cries for help there as well. So communication's key. Um, but I understand that, you know, for men, it, it' bit of an ego thing. You know can be a bit of a taboo talking about their mental health, but that's where physical activity comes in. You know, when if you can't talk to someone, we'll go do something and, and, and keep active. Um, I think a lot of guys and girls struggle as well, because when you're in the military, you, you've got free gym membership and things like that. And when you don't, when you come out, you don't. But what's been great with, with COVID um, is the fact that you don't need a gym. You know, a lot of people going out walking, a lot of people learning how to ride bikes. You know, when, when it gets hard and you know you've got to tighten your belt, I think the gym memberships be really the first thing to drop off.
0: Yeah, um, we mentioned challenges today and, and pushing yourself. You you briefly mentioned there that you were you were training for something. What's next for Dean? What's the big challenge ahead of him?
1: So I've got I've got a, um, you know got a few in the back of my mind. You know my, my USP, as we touched on, I, I'm not a cyclist. You know um, compared to other adventures and challenges out there, I would take a a sport or discipline I've never done before and find the biggest challenge. So the plan for this year originally was to kayak the River Nile from source to sea. It's never been done before from Rwanda to Egypt, 4,280 miles. But obviously COVID's scuppered that, you know, COVID's put a a, a stop to that until, you know, until next year when we see the lay of the land. So that's something we will come back to. The planning wise, you know, I've got it all mapped out and things like that. So I'll take over that, but there's one, uh, there's one I'm going to do next year. Um, it's all on the hush, um, but it'll be here in the U S and again, you know, this is another reason for moving over to America now is everything's been paused. So let's go over, get established uh, and do that. But one of the, one of the other feedbacks from the book was, is you are the security expert. You were one of the world leading experts, you know, prime ministers, presidents, royal family come to you for advice why are you still not doing it? So over here, I've you know, I've set up a niche security industry which helps ultra high net worths, corporations and everyone else.
0: We mentioned your book there. Um, for everyone listening who may not have, have picked up a copy or, or, or had the chance to read it yet, what can they expect from the book? What can they expect to learn if they go out and grab themselves a copy?
1: It's a, you know, it's a, it's got a bit of everything in this book, you know, it's not just gone from the military to the, you know, the TV, it's gone from the military to a whole, whole middle section on private security and then to the bike ride. But what it is, what they get from this book is, is especially in the current climate is reinventing yourself, starting over again and, and being, being confident. You know, I was told I couldn't, I, would, I last two minutes in the military. I then got to the top of, you know, in the special forces. I then, I then got injured. I then had to then find myself in the security. I then got to the top within the security industry. You know, one time lucky, two time not. We then did it again. You just then done it in in cycling. You Never cycled before. I then became a double world record holder within 18 months. And the first guy, uh, first person in history to cycle under 100 days. So that's not lucky three times. There's a mindset in there which is, you know, which is transferable to whatever you do, whether it's military, whether it's corporate or whether it's sport. Um, and I think that's what people will learn from this book is, is that mindset and that approach.
0: Amazing. So for anyone out there who wanted to check it out, where can they find the book? Where can they find yourself on social media and uh, connect with you?
1: Yeah, so you can get the book on, uh, on Amazon uh, and Audible. Um, it's called Relentless. And you can find me on www.deanstock.com, the frogman.
0: Perfect, perfect. I encourage everyone to do so. Dean, thanks so much for your time today. Um, you've brought an incredible amount of value to the show, and uh, I appreciate that. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you've enjoyed your time on the podcast as well.
1: Yeah, I've, I've, I've learned a new thing, the imposter syndrome.
0: Am we are. <laughs> Amazing. Learn something new every day.